Hey folks, before we get into today's episode, I want to share a little bit of news with you. Longtime Prognosis Ohio listeners know that learning how to keep this rolling has had a learning curve for me. Taking it to the next level, I found, is no different. We have a core of a few hundred loyal listeners, from healthcare professionals to legislators to public health experts to activists and advocates. And we've had a slew of really great guests, all of whom I've been humbled to be able to talk with. My hope is to build the show up so we can reach all corners of the state and be the go-to place for smart, focused, and even enjoyable discussions about health and healthcare here in Ohio. But I admit, I've also found it hard to keep up the pace. I'm a full-time professor, and I do this show in my spare time without any support on the production side. And as you probably heard last week with the quality of my audio, this sometimes leads to mistakes, which then keeps me up at night stewing. Not a good thing for a healthcare podcast. So I'm going to be taking some steps to correct this. I've got some great episodes planned through the end of May, but then I'm going to take June and July off, not only to recharge a bit, but to do some strategic planning around the show. I'm planning on a big reboot this August and already have some great guests, including some big names you'll certainly know, already lined up. I'm also going to be looking at ways to improve the sound quality and overall shape of the show and give our social media and web presence an overhaul. And finally, I'm going to be working with our friends at WCBE to talk about ways we can continue to grow that relationship. So that's the update. Of course, I'd love your support through Patreon if you could swing it. That'd really help. But I'd also welcome just hearing from you with your ideas about how a show like this could be most useful to you, or if you have ideas about how it could better serve its mission, namely to serve as a place for community building and getting to the important questions impacting health here in Ohio. On this week's episode, our Prognosis Ohio intern Claire McGee talks with Betsy Anderson, Executive Director of Serenity Grove, a not-for-profit Level 2 recovery home in Athens, Ohio. Under the direction of Women for Recovery, Serenity Grove provides a safe transitional environment in which women struggling with addiction can develop skills for independent sober living. In their conversation, Claire and Betsy talk about the stigma surrounding substance use disorders, gender inclusivity, and how addiction and recovery have changed during the pandemic. On a personal note, I want to thank Claire for the great work she's done for the show over the past few months. Claire helped prep me for interviews, pulled together show notes, and served as a general sounding board as we rethought certain aspects of the show. She's going to go on to really big things with a great summer internship and then grad school in the fall. We're going to miss her, but I just want to thank her for her great work. So here's today's interview in which I stay quiet and Claire interviews Betsy Anderson, Executive Director of Serenity Grove. Betsy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. So let's just start by having you tell us a little bit about Serenity Grove. Okay, thank you for having me. Um, So Serenity Grove is a level two transitional recovery house. And what that means, because I think many people don't, I didn't when I started this whole process. Um, The state of Ohio and probably nationally um, recognizes four different levels. A level four would be a full treatment center where there would be medical and psychological, psychiatric, fully staffed 24-7. A level three type of recovery option would have medical staff, counseling staff on site, would probably still have quite restricted access um, in terms of who can visit and and whether or not residents are able to leave. They can't just leave at will. Um, A level two is no more of the medical or counseling staff on site. So we are not a service provider at all. A level two transitional recovery house could be, um, 
could be a for-profit operation. We are a not-for-profit 501c3, but the functionality would remain the same. Um, We are a safe, stable platform where women reside. So it's a little bit like a landlord-tenant agreement at its core. So they assign an agreement to stay with us for a period of time. And during that period of time, they cannot use drugs or alcohol. And there are some other conditions, but, but really at its core, it's, it's a living arrangement that supports recovery. Um, a level one, just to move it down further, would be if the residents chose to move to a home together and live together and support one another with no staff at all. So we are staffed, but we're not 24-7. You know, there's not a requirement that there's a staff presence here at every moment of the day and night. So that's, in a nutshell, that is what Serenity Grove is. Great. Yeah. And when I when I was looking around and doing some research on transitional housing, it seems like a lot of other housing uh, organizations have much lower minimum stays, like 30 days, as opposed to Serenity Grows 90. Um, so I'm wondering why you chose to um, to have a relatively longer minimum stay. So when the board of directors was organizing and kind of envisioning what this would be, we also did quite a bit of research. Um, and most of our takeaway was that substance use disorder is a chronic progressive fatal disease. Um, Too often the treatment or punitive approach is too short. Um, I'm sure people don't think the punitive approach is too short, but, but people were sent to treatment for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. And then off you go as if, as if the problem is resolved and, and now you don't need to return to substance use. Um, In the case of the punitive approach, somebody's incarcerated for a period of time, often without a lot of support towards um, recovery, uh, depends on, it depends. Sometimes there's great support available, but sometimes there's no support available behind the bars. Um, So we felt that asking a 90 day, uh, a 90 day minimum would allow time in the first 30 days to adjust to being with us and then becoming employed after the first 30 days. It is our expectation that residents are employed. So then they're navigating what that feels like, getting back into the community and the workforce, and that it would be not until after that third 30 days that one begins to be able to have enough structure to contemplate next steps in terms of independent living. We've found in the um, close to three years that we've been open that the most successful residents have have chosen to stay on average four to five months. So Mm -hmm. typically the people who have moved on most successfully have stayed with us longer than that 90 days. You mentioning the the importance of having really expansive recovery resources outside of the punitive system is is definitely a great point. And in somewhere like a rural area like Athens, um, one of the poorest counties in Ohio, um, we definitely don't have a ton of resources um, when it comes to behavioral health or access to general health care. So when Women for Recovery was formed and Serenity Grove was, was just an idea, how did you hope that Serenity Grove would fill some of these gaps? Mm, that's a great question, um, because you captured in that question everything we hoped for. Uh, you know, we we started because although the Clem House had been in Athens for some time serving men in their recovery from substance use disorders, there wasn't anything for women. And and when we realized, particularly when the opiate crisis came kind of to the forefront of everybody's awareness, it it was just more acutely obvious that there was nothing in our area for women who wanted to be closer to their home county um, or closer to family and support systems, but 
but needed support while still navigating their early recovery. Um, I think we tried to look at at the data about what was needed in our area. We talked, I know we talked a lot with the different health systems, uh, both behavioral and medical health, you know, Ohio Health, Holzer, the different providers, um, and, and then felt that the best approach might be to facilitate the different pieces and parts. So when a woman comes to us, whether she's coming to us from a treatment center or from having been incarcerated, almost the first thing that we're doing is um, hooking her up with all those different providers that you just mentioned. So she might already be connected with HRS or Integrated or Hopewell or some other provider. Um, she may or may not have medical care. So maybe she already ha is in a system and we try to match whatever system she's in, or if she's not, find find the local provider that, that seems to be the best fit of her choice. Um, we always go to Ohio Means Jobs, the workstation, um, that is Job and Family Services. Particularly, we go to Sean Stover, who immediately starts the process of connecting uh, each resident with what is she eligible for in terms of benefits, and is she getting those benefits? Um, what kind of paperwork is needed? Does she have a birth certificate, an actual, the, you know, the actual hard copy, social security card? What vocational options are going to be, will she be eligible for based on charges that she may carry? Does she need a GED? Does she need vocational training? So, so kind of captured in your question, I think because the women who really got this started brought a variety of strengths and were from this area and connected to a number of different uh, resources, we we knew that the most critical point would not just be to put somebody in a room and say, okay, well, now you have a house and we'll make sure you stay sober, but to immediately begin the process of reconnecting um, the residents with a community and, and becoming a productive contributing member of, of the community as quickly as possible. And I, and I think in the in the first part of that, you touched on something really important um, about the the unique needs of women in recovery and how this community has needs separate from from men in recovery um, or a general community in recovery, um, especially when it comes to things like safety and, and connection um, and, and access to resources like like child care and child services. Um, but I'm, I am curious about how Women for Recovery as an organization and Serenity Grove thinks about gender. Um, for example, have you had discussions about the, the definition of women in recovery um, and openness to uh, trans women or non-binary individuals? We have, and that's an ongoing discussion with our board. Um, uh, currently, the board of directors and our staff, we're, we are all participating in a, a deliberate Racial, racial awareness and inclusion. Uh, there's actually a 12-step program that, that helps kind of deconstruct white supremacy, white privilege, um, the, the concept of what it means to be white in a, in a culture that, that m provides advantages to that group even if that group doesn't see it always. Um, so we're working on that, but certainly included in that in that conversation would be a recognition of the many different ways that individuals identify and, and what would that look like uh, if we were to serve an individual um, who had a particular gender identity that, that where, would, where would that be? Um, that is not an issue that we have resolved at this point for, for um, several reasons. One, it hasn't presented itself. <laughs> and sometimes that becomes the cart that drives the horse when a situation comes up. Although we would like to, I think, be forward thinking 
um, in how to approach that. We can only serve five women and the women do share a room. So we have a double and a triple. Mm-hmm. So, and they share a bathroom. So, so there would be a number of considerations, obviously, that, that just partly the physical space that we currently have might present if, if we were to have, um, have a situation arrive that, that we're not maybe yet completely ready for. But, but I also think that it's a, a very hands-on board of directors that would try to welcome, welcome the opportunity to um, adjust and, and make whatever accommodations we needed to, to try to be inclusive in every way. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and, and just kind of as a follow-up to that question, um, how have you seen in your personal experience working with these women, how is being a part of a community and living with other women um, conducive to their recovery? Another great question. Um, so I'm going to start by saying that almost without fail, women arrive and would say they don't like other women and they don't trust other women. And and what seems to happen in the course of staying here um, is a gradual awareness that the most supportive group are others, other individuals who are themselves in recovery from substance use, because there's that shared connection of experience, even if the experiences are vastly different at core, the experience of addiction has some commonality that I think people recognize. And then I think that the shared experience of being female, of having navigated life and navigating addiction, having navigated all the different moving parts of that, um, you know, oftentimes issues with with custody of children. Um, not everybody's lost custody, but many have experienced you know, uh, lots of hardship with with estranged relationships with family members or the loss of children or loss of access, healthy access to children. And so gradually, I think that those those commonalities, real that women again can understand woman to woman, um, that it it ends up being the case that often the support that that the individual women can offer to one another, and then our staff, you know, is female. Our board of directors currently is an all-female board. We do not intend that to be a statement. It happened in the getting this up and off the ground that that made good sense. Um, that's been another conversation at the board level. We're quite aware that, you know, that we're not trying to discriminate in any way. Um, but but it, it means that in the safety of this environment and um, some of the ability to have conversations with a group of women, some who are here as residents, some who are here as staff, others who are members of the recovery community or our broader community of Athens, there starts to be a softening in the distrust of one another. So I think it's important. I think that it's important that women recognize that women do need to support each other. Of course, we need men too, but but there is something about starting to learn to trust trust each other and not um, not push women away just instantly without ever giving the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and I'm sure some of that connects back to our, our earlier point on on the the 90 day minimum stay. I'm sure that that takes time to build and um, it takes time to, to to have a community of trust and shared experience. Um, so now I want to pivot a little bit. Um, and of course, 
during these times, we have to touch on some COVID-related questions. Um, and obviously, everyone has their own experiences, um, but we know that addiction recovery have definitely been complicated in a lot of ways by the pandemic. Um, and a big piece of the mission at, at Serenity Grove and with Women for Recovery is encouraging hope. And and right now, a vaccine is a big piece of hope um, in, our, in our society. But with the current FDA emergency use authorization of the vaccine, it's it's pretty hard to mandate in a lot of settings like Serenity Grove. Um, so I'm wondering how your organization has has na- navigated COVID um, and has navigated these hard discussions surrounding the the vaccine. So we've relied quite a bit when this unfolded. Of course, I'm sure I'm saying nothing that is new. I don't think people, we didn't realize how quickly, you know, when it happened, what was happening. And I think that's probably true of most of us in the United States and around the world. Wow, what's happening here? So we did have to scramble a bit at first. Um, obviously, we we almost immediately were in the lockdown, um, in the governor's lockdown from this time last year, well into May. And so at that point, we developed a protocol as quickly as we could with the help of the 317 board who we work under, under their umbrella, so to speak, and also with Ohio Recovery Housing. So Ohio Recovery Housing and um, the National Alliance of Recovery Residences, that NAR, were quick to put out some suggestions and guidance. And then, uh, you know, as more and more information became available, firm that up. So um, it's hard now to look back to a year ago and try to think what we were doing, but um, you know, I guess immediately we we first we were not going anywhere, and then practicing all of the recommended hand washing and sanitizing, and you know, mat wearing masks. So that portion, uh, that portion was actually pretty easy, and we we by somewhat good luck have had a quite stable population of residents. Um, one immediate change was that we could not accept a self admit. So ordinarily, if somebody can demonstrate that they have been sober and clean for at least 30 days, we could take a self-admit. But for this last year and still, we can only take door-to-door arrivals. So people coming to us from treatment or from incarceration where there are other protocols in place to ensure COVID-free transfer of of individual. Um, In terms of the vaccine, a shout out to our local health department, the Athens City County Health Department very quickly included Serenity Grove among the other behavioral health providers and congregate living situations in our area. So we had our first, those of us who chose to, which was all of my staff uh, and three, I think three or four of the residents, we've had some turnover with our residents. Um, we're able to do that in December of 2020 and we're fully vaccinated by January 23rd of 2021. So that was fantastic. I did have some residents who chose not to take the vaccine and had concerns. So we tried to have conversations. I, I have quite a lot of printed material that is still available here at the house. Um, if somebody, the house of course is off limits only to, it's open only to staff and residents. So that would be a protocol that has been, that was immediately enacted during COVID. Um, mm. But but I think I'm gonna echo what you said. We have to respect individuals' rights to make that choice. Um, so, so the counter to that is simply that we continue to operate with all the other protocols. So. When a resident leaves the home, she must wear her mask. And, you know, we have lots of uh, sanitizer and, you know, it's going out the door with everybody. And upon returning, washing hands, you know, removing shoes, taking all the necessary steps that have been in place really for this whole year now.
Deshaun Goncalves has impressed American Idol judges and fans. He may make it look easy now, but he had to overcome a fear of performing. And it took a very long time to gain the confidence in myself and really believe that I could do it. <laughs> you know, so to actually be doing it is just surreal. Goncalves shares more about his Idol experience and reflects on his Columbus days with the Paragon Project on Music Journeys at WCBE.org. We're definitely entering a time where there's a little bit more more hope of coming out of the COVID pandemic, and um, it's great to hear that uh, Serenity Grove has operated safely safely through it. Um, so, talking about a little bit about the the physical residents of Serenity Grove, um, just in reading some articles published about Serenity Grove in the past, um, I read that you had several deals fall through um, surrounding housing and, and face some pushback from the community um, related to some stigma surrounding those struggling with addiction um, and those recently uh, incarcerated. Um, so, I'm wondering how this stigma kind of generally impacts group morale, group community. And what other challenges or resistance from the community have you had to overcome? Yeah, the stigma is is real. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to fault the public for reaction. Um, I would say that all of us have flipped on the TV and seen a news story where a couple is slumped over the wheel of their car in the parking lot of a McDonald's and gosh, there's a child strapped in the back, you know, and it's another, um, another overdose or another, this is what opiate addiction looks like, or this is what addiction looks like. And, and so I understand that, you know, to somebody who's not familiar with addiction, that's horrifying and upsetting, but it tends to lead to this stereotypical one size fits all approach to what addiction is. So, so back to kind of finding Serenity Grove, that's true. We looked at a number of houses in the Plains, Nelsonville, the Athens city uh, area. We are just outside the city of Athens now, is, is, happens to be the house that we found. And we did experience um, a couple instances of once the seller was aware, and of course we disclosed upfront the purpose of, of what we were looking for, you know, that we were going to be starting a level two transitional recovery house. Um, there was concern, like, I'm not sure, you know, my neighbors might be mad at me or just it, it, I, I can't say that it was a deliberate, you know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to vilify the, 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 the sellers who, in which case we, the deal fell through. Um, there were a couple of instances where we were hoping to make an actual offer and it became clear that we could not, that it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna go. And, and I think it's fair to say that stigma, um, as it happens, I'm going to trust the process in where we ended up because we are five minutes from everything we need in Athens. And yet we sit on nearly seven acres, um, of, of property, lovely wooded area. And I, I would say that it allows privacy and space for the residents as well, because had we ended up porch to porch in a in a an established cul-de-sac neighborhood, maybe there would have been issues on both ends. You know, I don't want to, to say that. You know, maybe we also are better served by having some privacy and space. Um, women are able to go take a walk. They <clears throat> they can sit on the porch and smoke a cigarette and watch the birds or um, not everybody smokes. So I don't have to use that as my example, but there's just, there is space and privacy. So I think in the end, I'm grateful that the house we're in is where it's located. But, but coming back to that bigger issue of stigma, 
Um, when talking about active drug addiction, many, many people who end up seeking help later do so because they've, they've kind of been through the ringer, not just with the addiction itself, which really can just crush people, but the consequences that come with it, many of which are legal, particularly, you know, the legal challenges with drug use. So most charges that come with drug use are felony charges. Um, and so when, again, think back to the, the, the reaction to that, com the news story about the couple slumped over and what bad people they must be. When you say that somebody carries felony charges, there is again, a knee jerk reaction, you know, a felon, a convicted felon that sounds frightening and upsetting and, and can be, you know, um, so I guess I would say in my experience of working for three years with, we've had 29 women so far, uh, to date, and most of them have carried at least a felony charge. Um, I've yet to meet one person who frightens me or um, who isn't, once, once a human gets to know another human, there almost always is a connection and a bond and a value in a human life. Um, and I think that is the bigger message that Serenity Grove, that we as an organization, Women for Recovery, would love to put out. Um, that, that each individual who suffers from substance use disorder, there's so much more to the individual than just that, that part of the story. And that if we would slow down and take the time to help recognize the different uh, obstacles that humans face, because we all face them, you know, not everybody has substance use disorder, but I think it's safe to say all humans have different issues and brokenness and challenges. Um, and we're so quick sometimes to judge a presenting fact without getting to know what's behind that. So, and I think it's, it's definitely really interesting. I'm, I'm from Athens um, and you've spent a lot of time in the communities as well. Um, and we live in a place very close to uh, a university where, where social justice and activism is a big piece of uh, a big part of our life here. Um, but still, it's not surprising, as you said, to, to know that some people have um, stigma against people struggling with addiction, and that has manifested in the, the struggle that you found in, in, in looking for housing and looking for a residence for Serenity Grove. And I'm just wondering kind of what you think about the contrast between what people may say or advocate for when it comes to recovery and addiction um, and their willingness to welcome people actually experiencing and going through recovery into their community? Mostly, I have to um, say that that for the women who have, have put in the hard work, and it's hard work, one day at a time, you know, to get a life back, because it didn't fall apart in a second, you know, and it's not going to get put back together in a second. But most of the women who, who really engage in reconnecting with the supports and the community, um, the community itself, not just the supportive services that are here, but actually interfacing with the community and rebuilding the structure um, have have been welcomed back. I, I'm mm -hmm. gonna use uh, one of our early residents as my example. Um, she, I think we were the eighth or ninth attempt that she had made um, in, in terms of like treatment, not counting having been incarcerated and having been sent to detox centers, but actually trying to Put her life back together and she stayed with us for a year and a half um during that time it was i'm gonna say you know slow at the start um 
resisting maybe a little bit of like, I don't want to work at McDonald's or Subway or Wendy's. I'm not, not picking on any of the fast food establishments. Honestly, the fast food establishments have been fantastic at supporting, uh, supporting employment. So I want to thank them for that. But, but, you know, like kind of a, a resistance to like, what does it take to actually get life back? So fast forward to now, she has celebrated three years of continuous sobriety at this point and is employed by a local business owner, um, is in a, a little house um, close to the, the bus line. She's in the city of Athens, so she's close to all the supports that she needs. She is reunited with her children. Um, and in fact, she we have hired her on as a peer support uh, mm-hmm. specialist, and she works part-time for us, helping, helping kind of guide and model what it takes for our other newer residents. So I would use that as an example because I would say that the at least in the community of Athens, I think that when somebody wants to rebuild and, and is sincere and is making every effort on her part, the community has responded very positively um, mm-hmm. and has helped lift up, you know, the individual in need. So I, that's been a wonderful, gratifying experience to be part of. And I think seeing people um, in the community, working with people in the community that are in recovery um, is a big piece of, of diminishing that stigma that we have. And so here's a, a sort of finishing question um, that I have when I was reading about Serenity Grove um, in one of the articles published on Serenity Grove. Uh, it mentioned that at, at a fundraiser you had, you had a, a quote that I really loved um, projected on a screen that said, people grow when they're loved well, if you want to help others heal, love them without an agenda. Um, and I'm wondering how you think our listeners can take this idea with them as they interact and love individuals struggling with addiction recovery. That's really a beautiful quote. Um, the the loving without an agenda, the um, no strings attached. Now, we all know the way life works. <laughs> we have to have some strings attached. So, so for a woman to remain with us at Serenity Grove, she does have to remain sober and clean. Um, we actually have, have some support in place if there would be a slip so that that doesn't mean that, you know, you just, it's not like everything is lost, but, um, but, but really to, to reach out to other humans, I think, especially in this crazy climate we've had for quite some time now, both in terms of this addiction piece that we're talking about specifically, but just, I think that our culture in general, we've become quite polarized. And that quote, would capture a lot that could be applied to any situation. I think to just, if we remember at the end of the day that we are all part of this human race and and we're experiencing life one day at a time, trying to do the best we can, each of us carrying whatever baggage we may be carrying, even if we're not showing that to the outer world, um, that yes, to love without an agenda. I think that that sums it up in a powerful way to give other humans the benefit of the doubt and try to love without an agenda. Thank you. Um, And thank you, Betsy. Uh, This was all so helpful. I learned so much from the conversation and I'm I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, We'll be sharing information related to Serenity Grove with our listeners and on our website and social media um, so they can learn more and find ways to support. Um, Thank you so much for the work that you do um, and for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you, Claire. It was my pleasure. I'm grateful that you asked. Many thanks to Betsy Anderson for being on the show and to Claire McGee for expertly handling the interview. 
You'll find more information about Serenity Grove in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted by Claire McGee. It was produced by me with editorial and production assistance from Claire. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at Prognosis Ohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback, and you'll find links on our website to do just that. Thanks, everybody, and be well.